Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing, plus all of our other podcasts, over at blisterreview.com. Okay, this week we have got Cody Townsend back on the show for our monthly Reviewing the News episode. And so, yeah, we're a little bit late getting to our February 2021 news recap, but this is a good episode. And we cover a lot of diverse things in this conversation, including some changes that are coming to filming permits and filming in national parks. Cody and I talk about lift line etiquette and, you know, there is a heated debate about whether or not it's okay to leave skis to hold your place in lift lines. So we try to get to the bottom of this. We talk about the future of free ride comps, comps like Natural Selection and Kings and Queens of Corbett's. And we raise the question, are these the future? We talk about backcountry skiing and this season and why we've seen so many avalanche fatalities. We also talk about the future of backcountry skiing and whether we might see some new developments and emerging trends along the lines of controlled backcountry. From there, we talk about the wild and very sobering story of Dean Cummings And we wrap things up with a couple of album recommendations and a book that Cody and I both plan to read in the near future. So that is what we have on tap for you today. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Cody. Here we go. Well, Cody, good to be catching up with you again. We're running a little behind schedule in part because we were launching this blister summit thing and you have been on the road a little bit and figuring out your own logistics and stuff so uh i think we're like a week behind or a few days behind at least on doing our review in the news segment but happy to be talking with you uh once again yeah totally no we're uh yeah we are in march reviewing february's yeah hot topics <laughs> yes but uh i think both of us you you've been obviously busy with the blister summit which at least said that panel they did was awesome i really um i don't know are you guys posting these panels and whatnot so because i really wanted to listen to it it sounded really good dude they're so good i i swear like and you'll you know everybody can judge for yourself but yeah we're gonna be rolling these out and i i was just like kind of like, I can't believe this is happening right now. So I don't have a firm release date, but I think sometime within the next seven to 10 days, we're going to start rolling out those panel conversations. And they were, Elise and everybody else that we kind of had on these things were really fantastic. So I was hearing comments from some of the heads of ski companies saying things like, this was like the most educational thing I've seen in the ski industry in, I don't know, a really long time. So yeah, ex- excited to get those rolled out. And uh, yeah, so very wildly busy time, but a, but a really good time. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm in the same boat. You know, I'm calling you from my van, new van. I uh, haven't released it to the world as showing it yet, but uh, I am on the road um, for the first time for the 50 in particular. Not going to say exactly where I'm at, but there, you know, it's been such a crazy avalanche year. And we're going to talk about that obviously a little further on, but uh, I've been having to be super, super patient. So finally, just kind of get my feet wet um but it's been busy kind of in a certain way stressful because you're like not that it's like i need to get episodes done for any production reasons or anything like that but more just like okay now this spring is just getting more and more jammed up it's just like apps i'm just realizing it's like oh cool you're gonna try and do eight lines in like four weeks so so that's where it's kind of getting stressful but um but we're we're trying to get our feet wet hopefully we've got some goals in mind and we're just kind of uh, you know, tendon or footing our way into the backcountry, approaching cautiously. But so, yeah, uh, on the road, probably for the rest of the year. So we'll be continuing to do these podcasts probably from exactly where I sit, which is in my van somewhere. I'm in a parking lot right now. I don't might be another parking lot somewhere else might be uh, next time in a trailhead. I don't know. So, well, you just kind of gave me the the video call van tour. And holy cow. Holy cow. 
you're 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 doing all right yeah no this thing is insane it's been an upgrade like i love those gfcs they're amazing but like to all of a sudden have just like your base camp on wheels with like fully heated situation drying closets ski racks and you know a kitchen it's just and this desk that i'm perfectly at tons of power i'm like this is okay i get it so yeah hashtag van life i'm in <laughs> <laughs> well let's go let's go ahead and get started and i guess there's there's one thing that we maybe wanted to touch on from our last reviewing the news episode. And I think there was just a little bit of a clarification or something. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, it was just related to oxygen use and uh, the NIMS and the K2 summit. I might have misspoken in saying, or it was just a little misworded or in order or whatever, but it was that NIMS did all 14, 18, 8,000 8, meter peaks without oxygen. He did those with oxygen, but he did K2 in winter with no oxygen, which came out a little after so which was actually spoke really cool to he didn't claim it right off the bat because he was i believe the only one to do it without oxygen but he kind of let the team revel in the glory and then about three four days after their uh their summit he mentioned he was like yeah i did it with no oxygen too which makes it even more badass so winter no oxygen yeah so that that was kind of the clarification but um well you know we're gonna misspeak on this podcast it happens it's an hour-long conversation but that one i guess felt a little more detailed so uh we'll clear that up but now we can kind of get into yeah this uh our first topic which uh proceeded with me excitingly texting you <laughs> yeah it kind of started something like holy beep like that was kind of the text and you're like dude check this out so why don't you tell people about the link you sent me and why this was such a big deal to you? Yeah, I think this is the first time a federal court case has impacted my life and career so much. But uh, this actually came out right after we recorded our pod, uh, January 25th, uh, Hollywood Reporter. The headline is National Park Service can't require permits and fees for commercial filming judge rules. So a D.C. federal judge found it's unconstitutional content based restriction on free speech to make filmmakers pay to shoot in national parks just because their work is commercial. So for me and this project, that is honestly one of the biggest reliefs I think I've ever gotten from it. Um, and I will say it wasn't necessarily because the 50 is commercial. Um, every time I've applied for permits, um, spoken with National Forest Service officers, wilderness officers and managers, you know, they point to, oh, you're, you know, you're filming in a wilderness area, but it's on your personal YouTube channel. Yeah, you have logos on there, but we can't say necessarily it's an advertisement for anything. So you're good. And they were always kind of like watching the nature of the the content and being that, yeah, it's ski focused. You guys are, you know, exuding good principles. You kind of promoting safe backcountry travel, all that kind of stuff. So the 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 thing about it is, though, the the policies uh, at these national parks in particular were completely interpreted by whoever's managing the park itself. So I would go to one park like Grand Teton National Park and they're like, yeah, you're good good to go and then i would go to a park like glacier national park and they're like no we're not giving you a permit and i would have to i back and forth trying to sweet talk park managers all this stuff and they'd just be like no you we're not giving you a permit and it was just like one of the biggest absolute headaches for for this project as a whole and I know a lot of people in the film industry and specifically ski film industry are just like completely entangled in the bureaucracy and trying to figure out how to manage it and how to get permits. And sometimes you get permits, sometimes you don't. Well, this court case just pretty much made made it that what they were doing was uh, infringing upon First Amendment rights. And the main reason was because they were deciding the parks ex post facto. So after your episode your movie whatever it is you produced came out they could then fine you which is saying that it is up to just an individual bureaucrat to decide whether your content your what you are putting out there meets their requirements which is essentially saying you know a federal government is impringing upon first amendment rights you know and the thing about it too the for me 
What it really, this new ruling is just going to go back to the original impetus of the law, which was that in the 70s, the Wilderness Act, they they labeled commercial filming was banned, not because they were worried about people making money off of it, but mainly because the only commercial filming that existed back then was Hollywood filmmaking. And you'd have sets of hundreds of people on, you know, in Grand Teton National Park and uh, stages and sound stages and like props and stunts and all that kind of stuff. And it really like, yeah, you're kind of trampling on the land. You're, you know, disturbing visitation and potentially disturbing wildlife. So they that's how in order to preserve the wilderness character, that's how they um, made the rule based upon was like, okay, commercial, like Hollywood. So it didn't necessarily have to do with the fact that it was like, oh, if they're making money, it's more the fact that they were just trampling on the land. So now the new rulings and some of the new policies that come out are much more related to impact. Um, they're still interpreting the the policy. Um, they're still trying to create new policies based on it. But for the most part, it's going to the original intent of the law, which is like, hey, don't come in here and trample and build stages and disturb wildlife and you're good to go. It, you know, it was a massive headache for me as as a filmmaker and trying to make this thing. Not the end of the world. I don't want to sound complaining about it, but mainly it did feel weird. Like I, I honestly had plans that if eventually I got to a point where I was getting denied permits that I was going to try and sue the federal government because it was like this definitely feels like it is some sort it's illegal in a weird way i'm like why is it up to the interpretation of a land manager and a person that just got hired to determine whether you are fined or not so and dude we we talked about this i think in our just our very last conversation when we were talking about the mountain why so that was either our last one or two conversations ago but we were talking about rainier and you were mentioning like well we shot some stuff but i'm you know not like allowed to use it seems like this is gonna just open some stuff up for you and what you're allowed to continue to show yeah totally no and it's well we're preparing to release the mount rainier episode because we filmed the whole thing. We couldn't publish it, but it was like, yeah, we're just like three people climbing a mountain with GoPros and a handheld camera. Yeah. So it's almost no different than any visitor just coming and GoProing their entire, you know, their ascent or whatnot and putting it on their YouTube channel. So, but because I have eyes on me and whatnot, I was definitely forced to just bury it. But um, talk to a lawyer, the, read the policy that everyone's like, yeah, they're not going to try and prosecute past um, infringements or permits that were denied or anything. So so we're going to release that episode. There is some new stuff coming out, I will say. they, they're, The policies are changing. I've seen some backlash, too. And it's a very anti-influencer backlash. Backpacker put out a little piece, an opinion piece about, oh, it's going to be a free-for-all. And this is like a crucial funding source for the national parks. And I call total BS on that because I guarantee they're getting less than a million dollars a year in commercial film permits for National Park Service when the federal government has... Uh, you know, decreased the budget for national parks by the billions of dollars over the last 10 years. So like, yeah, not really. And a free for all for individuals, like it's just like anti-influencer backlash um, that is like kind of coming like, oh, now they're going to be overrun and whatnot. And you're like, they were already overrun. (laughs) Like, and they, you know, if anything, what my whole philosophy is like, the more, people that know about these places, the more people that are going to fight for them, um, more people that are going to vote for people that are into funding them. Um, you know, like if people, people don't care about what they don't know. So, you know, if, if a bunch of politicians are telling everyone the Anwar, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is an absolute desolate, you know, horrible landscape, Arctic landscape, but you go show films from up there and people are like, whoa, that's beautiful. And there's a ton of wildlife. Then you're counter to that point. And I think the same thing. So to me, you know, the backlash, it's, it is what it is, but for overall, one of the biggest stories in my career in a long time. I I literally jumped out of my chair and was dan- dancing around. So it's 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 huge for me. It's really interesting, and we'll see how these things unfold and play out. But that is very much my take that I do think showing these areas, and you know, we do know that some of the some of the national parks are really overcrowded, and a lot of parks 
see very little visitation. And it, I think it would be really interesting if somehow by being able to show, especially those parks that don't see as many visitors, that if that can start to show people like, oh, we should go check that one out. And just, I mean, we've got this amazing resource in this country. And hopefully if that is drawing more people out to them than I am on team, like, I think that is a positive development for all the reasons that you've just kind of said. So I guess we shall see. Yeah, no, it's just overall, I mean, like, it just eliminates this layer of bureaucracy that I always thought was just funky. Like it was, you know, like judge, jury and executioner was the guy that ran a national park and they could not only deny your permit, but they could also fine you and they could also send you to court and start an investigation of venue based upon what content you put in a, a film on your YouTube channel. Like if it didn't promote the park in a good way, they could find you. And so, you know, it was just like, I remember just feeling this is weird. So luckily some guy price versus bar is the court ruling. If they want to look it up and they fought it for the same reasons. Um, and, and they won. So to, to me, it's just eliminating a quick little layer of bureaucracy. That is, that is awesome. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Well, shifting gears, <laughs> I don't really know even how we talk about this story, but I guess we are uh, we are talking about, I don't know, skier practices and policies, accepted etiquette in the ski world. Is that how we file this next story? Yeah, I guess so. And no direct article to this. I think it's more like a social <laughs> media thing that was blowing up, which, you know, yeah. I guess social media is now news, so we can cover that too. Sure. Um, we found a Reddit thread about it, um, but it had to do with, and this was something I was like tagged in because it was like I was the supposed authority on this and I got to get a little story about it too, but it was leaving your skis in line to to save your place in line before the chair lifts open. And so this blew up in Alta in Utah where, you know, powder days, people were coming up and leaving their their skis in line uh, an hour, two hours before the chair lifts open. But not just like, like a couple people, like almost the entire line. Like these pictures coming out, there'd be like, you could tell like 200 pairs of skis and like 14 people in line and it was just like i i got tagged in social like uh social media posts being like cody what's your ruling on this because everyone knows that this is something in squaw valley and squaw valley's been renowned for early you know lining lineups before the chairlifts open to get like first laps down the down the fingers so yeah i did uh, what what would be your ruling on it oh man i'm anti I'm anti. I think if you if you want to stand there forever on and in your skis, all good. But just dropping them and having the masses uh, then bounce, especially if it's like, well, this is either going to be a new thing and everybody is doing this. I just don't I don't think we want to go that way for some reason. Yeah, well, so I'll, I can give you my ruling on it because this has happened and this has been uh, a thing in Squaw Valley. Mine was it's acceptable in limited terms. So what we did at Squaw was uh, people would line up. And let's say you're a, a party of three. You got your two buddies and you show up at yes. the hill together at the same time. You line up. One buddy's like, hey, I'll go get coffee yes. and cookies or coffee and a bagel. Totally acceptable. Yes. And agreed. even maybe bring a coffee for the other people around you. And they go in, buy coffees, buy like cookies, buy whatever it is, bring it back out and hang out. You could be gone 20, 30 minutes, but like you knew they were coming back and it was totally fine. So it was kind of like if you're three, like one person could leave, maybe two people, but one person was kind of always there with your with your skis. Um, the main reason was because people were starting to show up so early that ski patrol and or the lift services would have to start to set up the lines and the gates might have to come in with a plow to move stuff up. So you needed to be able to quickly move skis to get out of the way in case like employees needed to do something. So that was kind of the rule. 
And I got to tell a story of uh, someone breaking this rule in my eyes when I was about 17 years old. So back when I was 17, I used to be one of the, the early chair rats and I was going for first chair. And according to Scott Gaffney, me and my bu- buddy George were kind of single handedly responsible for bringing the start time down by like an hour um, because like I used to wake up to go surfing at five in the morning and then i remember thinking wait i'm like wait i like skiing way more why don't i just like show up to the chairlift at six i don't care if it opens at nine i'm sitting there this is like i'm getting first chair so there uh i was one of those rats and one time uh kevin quinn who runs points north heli and his now wife jessica skoblowski they lived kind of hillside and they skied down to chairlift line they were in front of me And they ditched their skis and then walked back to their house. And actually, I don't even know if Jess showed up. I think he just brought her skis and left them in line, walked back to their house. And I was like, that is uncalled for. And my brash little 17-year-old ass started to, like, move their skis out of line and just push them down the hill off the side, completely disregarding the fact that... uh, Kevin Quinn is probably 6'3", 210 pounds, and literally played in the NHL as his only position was an enforcer. He played 13 <laughs> games in the NHL, and his job was to fight people. That yeah. was it. He was not a <laughs> defenseman. He was not anything other than an enforcer. So I was fucking with an NHL enforcer and his wife's skis. They got back to line. It blew up. Let's just say they ended up getting back in line in front of me. But it got a little heated and testy for a little minute. And I knew there was no chance I was going to fight him. He was, you know, still kind of a legend and to be respected, too. But he was, I will say, I didn't see him do that anymore. That was the last time he did it. And it wasn't just me. That was the, but I I was definitely, I think, the most brash about it. Other people were like, dude, that's uncalled for. So, so that's where my ruling on the Alta case came up with is like that, you know, it's respectable, but don't push the lines. Have someone there next to your skis. And it's, I guess, updated in Alta where they have changed their policy. You're not allowed to ditch your skis in line and i'm sure it'll be the same sort of thing where you know one person go and get coffee if they lure there with your skis but yeah it was a interesting little like uh hot topic on social media for a little bit what do you does crescent butte do this you see it no i i don't see it here so if there is a formal policy i don't even know what it is um, but it's not it's not a big practice here. And I think at a minimum for every ski area, regardless of the practice, I think that's a very solid rule. At least like if it's a if it's two people or if it's a group of three, at least one person needs to be there in case equipment does need to get moved or whatever. But I kind of feel like and if it's a if it's a group of three, I kind of like the policy, you know, or or uh, if it's a group of four or five or six, there should be more people still standing in the line than the number of skis like left around. I think that's a pretty good, uh, yeah, just a kind of unwritten rule of of proper uh, line etiquette, maybe we say. Yeah, no, I that that's a great way to quickly quickly look at it. Cool, I think we wrap that up. I'm curious to see if this is a topic anywhere else. So anyone in the comments, be like, if if you need a ruling from, you know, I guess I'm the the guy to make the decision on. I'll uh, yeah. I'll make a ruling. Send me photos. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> uh, so yeah, next topic. Um, again, we're going to kind of not the necessarily articles, but it's more just like kind of a trend in skiing and snowboarding in particular. And that's, um, you know, the next topic is being the backcountry kind of front country free ride comps. So comps that have popped up in, uh, in the last month being like Travis Rice's natural selection at Jackson Hole, Kings and Queens of Corbett's at Jackson Hole, and compared to like free ride world tour. And I'm more curious from an outsider's perspective, because I have my take as more of an insider but it's you know my take as an insider is some can be so different than what the audience watches and what they're interested in but do you think these are are these the future these style of events are are we moving away from park events and traditional big mountain or is, uh, is you know is it what's what do you see from it yeah 
let me frame it this way. If if I had to predict like five years out from now, starting with the five years out prediction, I don't think that we're going to see in five years a huge proliferation of these kind of, you know, one-off events. But if you said, all right, but what about 10 years out? I would actually have a bit more pause. I mean, I, I think natural selection is really interesting and really cool. Kings and Queens, I used to think was really cool. And each year I find it a bit more terrifying slash. It just looks like part four of the Matrix films. Like what people are what people are doing is like you're Neo. Like that's just Neo. And it's full hawk fest. It's a full hawk fest. Like I, I got invited to the very first year and I was like, there's no way I, th- I'm not doing that. Cause I knew what it was going to turn into. And it is gnarly what people are doing to a flat landing that is yeah. not very soft. Um, but it's going off. Like it is nuts what people are doing in the Corbett's. Like I am blown away of how much people are just absolutely hucking. But, you know, in a way, FWT comps, you could kind of say the same thing, couldn't you? I mean, I don't think so. So this is my take. Like, I watched Natural Selection, watched Kings and Queens, and I watched the the first stop of the Freeride World Tour in Andorra. I found by far the Freeride World Tour to be the most entertaining because there was such a diversity of lines and tricks. So my thing with natural selection, it was so sick, like right off the bat, you're watching the camera angles with the like the uh, racing drones following them, just boosting. I was like, oh, it's so rad. But like three or four rounds on, I was kind of like, okay, everyone's just doing 360s and some backflips. And like not where like if you went to the right line, it was much different than the left line or the middle line. And there wasn't there wasn't a ton of creativity. Kings and Queens, I feel like, is this like spectacle of just hawking where you're, yeah, just absolute hawk fest. Whereas the Freeride World Tour, it was like every line I watched, it was like people doing creative things, taking a cliff at a slightly different angle and like and tricking at times and other people not tricking at times. You know, you had big mountain chargers like Randy Barker had you know, skiing fast and hitting air, straight airs and trying to charge. And then, you know, Ross, um, Ross Tester, local squaw kid that I've known since he was like 12 years old, just absolutely throwing down, throwing backflips and threes and doing creative line selection. And to me, I was like, whoa, that, that event was so rad to, in my eyes. But at the same token, like, I'm a big mountain skier and I know the nuance of it so I can appreciate it more. So that's why I wanted to get like an outsider's take. I don't know if you've watched any of the free red world tours. Yeah. Well, and I think like, and I I don't mean this in any kind of pejorative way, but like Kings and Queens, I mean, it's literally about the entrance drop. That's it. I mean, it's not, it's not skiing. There is like an air at the section of the bottom that I think may just like, be the tiebreaker in a certain way but yeah it feels like the way they frame it media wise it's definitely just how you huck into corvettes itself yeah um and there's some creative stuff that went on but yeah it's it's definitely more just huck fest as opposed to ski contest yeah so like the and that's why i think again i'm still a fan i love seeing these entrances i'm i'm admittedly increasingly shocked slash impressed slash scared for people because the 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 bar is just getting raised in terms of what what people are doing and again like respect but that's why i when i answered like i don't think that this is going to be a new proliferation of events like this it is what it is i i don't see natural selection or kings and queens going away i'm i'm not i don't want them to go away but you know, they're kind of in their own distinct category. And then you've got big mountain comps, like ski comps with the FWT and that kind of thing. So I just, they're kind of different, just different beasts, I guess. I definitely just foresee more stuff like this starting to happen. Like, you know, we're watching park skiing is just so, it's, kind of unrelatable it's so hard to understand like i watch it as a pro skier and i don't even know what they're doing i can appreciate what they're doing i can appreciate the styles of certain guys but and i actually think by far right now the women are the most impressive because 
they're just they're progressing in a way that's unbelievable but watching some guy do a quad cork 1600 i'm like okay like and i saw another quad cork 1600 with a slightly different tweak and i'm like i okay i don't i don't know what differentiates that where it's a little bit easier to understand um when it comes back to kind of the simple formats the front country slash backcountry kind of free ride formats where you're like whoa we did a backflip off that cliff that's insane so um that's where it, it is pretty interesting and i think i think we'll we'll see more and more of it natural selection I think it's badass. I think I'd like I I want to see it continue to progress. It's going to be a hard event to pull off because you're going to always need good conditions for it. The free ride world tour, which is nice, is like they kind of do it in marginal conditions and people are still throwing down. So um, it more it's more representative to me of the way that like young kids ski the ski resort these days. When I go ski with the free ride teams, like they're spinning off every natural thing in sight. Doesn't necessarily matter the the, the snow conditions. They'll go to the park to work on their tricks, but they're like they're skiing the resort like it's a park. Park. And to me, that's where the free ride world tour is kind of going is like just tricking off everything in sight, skiing creatively. Um, it's, it's, I think it's in a good place, the free ride world tour right now. Um, obviously not with COVID and snow conditions in Europe, but it's in a good place as like where the skiing is at and it's entertainment in, in my opinion. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So where you want to go next? Oof. The, the, bad topic to talk about i guess the less exciting topic to talk about but important being you know a story that's making major news um you know we've talked to it's on i linked to an article on cnn it's been in the new york times it's been in every major media outlet across the u.s the fact that one february had the deadliest week in american avalanche history um along with now an unprecedented amount um i think you know when i wrote this document up for you 31 deaths and i think it's up to 32 so that's how quick it's evolving but we've had 32 avalanche deaths in the u.s to date and in the week of february 1st to february 8th we had 15 deaths and avalanches and uh i think the question everyone's asking is is why like why is this happening it, it's a tough year and there's no single you know i think point to blame but there's a lot of things that we could probably look at and You've dealt it with in Crested Butte. You've, you know, there's been a couple deaths there. I, I don't know. What do, what do you think about it? I mean, it's certainly been a big topic of conversation around here. And I mean, you and I have talked about this on, you know, in, in these reviewing the news conversations. I mean, I don't know if this is the most fundamental thing to say, but it it it's close to the most fundamental thing is that as backcountry skiers, we are all calibrating our own sense of sort of risk and reward, right? And we don't have some universally accepted standard of what is an acceptable amount of risk, right? And this has been a lot of the conversations among our friend groups and among our blister reviewers. You know, look, I I personally, when I get those you know, AVI status updates from the CB AVI center here. And it's like, things are considerable. I'm like, cool, I'm out. You know, like I'm happy to ski the resort today. And, you know, and I admittedly, I'm like, I, I wouldn't mind if kind of everybody that I care about was on that same page. But the fact is different friends, different people of the community have different risk tolerances. And, I don't know. I, I was about to say, and that's okay. You know, and, and other people might be like, no, it's not. You should never be going out at a certain level of avi danger or something. But I think ultimately there is a level of freedom that I think is inherent in backcountry skiing. And each of us has to think through our responsibilities, the level of risk, the level of reward. And we're not all going to be in the same spot. And, you know, we've lost some people that I sure wish were still around. And it's like, well, but they knew they weren't confused about the situations they were getting themselves into. They just had a higher risk tolerance. So anyway, those are just a few thoughts on this. But I mean, I think it's like, well, if no one went into the backcountry, we wouldn't have any avalanche deaths. And yet, 
coming back to this notion of there is a level of personal responsibility and personal freedom that I do want to defend. And here we are. But to me, like, and I, I, and I, I totally, I'm 100% on board with that. But what's interesting to me is like, we've actually seen avalanche deaths starting to trend downward, not necessarily a number, but in terms of backcountry users and almost like a plateauing of avalanche deaths. Well, last season, right? Last season, but even the seasons prior to that, we're in like the low 20s, you know, and sometimes yeah. below that. Um, so like considering the ex uh, explosion of use, backcountry use and backcountry skiing, it's like essentially going down. So things have been working. But like, why this year? Why has there been an absolute explosion of, of avalanche fatalities this year? And that's what I'm more interested in. Like, what are we doing wrong? Um, because... Like, I I think I have some theories, but I don't know. And no one, we may never know. And until there's really good data on it, then we may never truly know. So it's just, I, you know, like, we're, we're just into March and we're already exceeded. And we've got another couple months of ski season. <laughs> well, wait a sec. Okay, so two things. One, possibly it's the case that given COVID and restrictions in ski areas, that is it possible that more people are just like, yeah, it's not really a resort year for me. And so people are maybe, they kind of didn't get a pass this year. And so they're just like, I'm just going to be backcountry skiing this year. And so maybe they're going out sooner and in conditions that in prior years, they would have just been in bounds. That's, I definitely think, something. I think there is some COVID effect with that. I know a buddy that had a close call that didn't get a ski pass this year. So that definitely could be a part of it. I also potentially think, you know, the overcrowding we're seeing at ski areas, the absolute, like, you know, there's been an explosion on of, of skiing and, like, weekend use at ski areas. And... People, I think, are just going like, you know what? I don't want to go to the ski area. It's crowded. There's long lines. Can't even like go to a lodge or anything right now. So related to COVID and are just kind of like, yeah, I'd rather just go backcountry skiing. And they want to get out, even though it's considerable danger, like you said. Um, so they're just they're just going out just to get away with it. I think that potentially has a little bit of a factor. I do also think there's something to be said just for it's a really bad year for persistent weak layers like it was just a weird year like the kind of it's the kind of like avalanche layers that have been persistent through the entire season through montana idaho and colorado and even to a little bit in utah that are just like they just stick around the whole year and we haven't seen such widespread persistent weak layers they're the kind of la like layers that if I show up into town, I'm going, I'm going to leave town. Like I just, you just can't even, you know, you start to gain confidence because it's not breaking. You're like, oh, it's fine. It's fine. The avalanche danger is actually moderate. And then the whole thing goes and it's a massive D3 fatal avalanche. So I think that's potentially a, like, it's just happened in a year, like a perfect storm of Oh, it's crowded. People aren't getting passes. Um, they're wanting to go backcountry skiing to get away from ski areas, both maybe for COVID concerns, for crowding, traffic, all that. And then it just happened to be on a year and like one of the most unpredictable layers to um, to form. Will we see more of that? I don't know. Um, I think it's a little bit a part of it. It's just it's been a bad year. <laughs> well, and I was going to ask, because that was another thing I was going to say. I was going to ask you, do you accept that generalization that we are just in a particularly tricky snowpack this year? And it sounds like your answer is yes, very much you accept that. But then doesn't that bring back the case to certain years are going to be primed and good to go and other seasons aren't? And as a community, again, while I, I want to hold to the personal freedom and personal responsibility, there's also the like, yeah, it just wasn't the best year to be getting out all the time all around the backcountry. And that's going to be a thing 
in all subsequent years. Next year might be unbelievably great green light for a huge swath of the season in all kinds of different places, but it's it's just not this. It hasn't been the season so far. Yeah, it could be as simple as an explanation of that. And it's just like, sorry, wait a year. And, yeah. you know, like I I showed up to Silverton in the middle of that cycle. I was shooting there. We skied below 25 degrees and below the entire time. And, you know, we went to the most mellow things. Um, I posted something kind of about slope angle on my Instagram because we went to one slope that was above 30 degrees. And I got I was able to ski cut uh, a, a slide to the ground. It was only about a 200 foot slope, low hazard. It was a perfect place to test a slope. And we were like, yep, cool. Uh, we're back to 25 degrees. So you can go skiing. And maybe that's what needs to shift a little bit is more the education on terrain management of like, hey, like. It's a really bad year. Do you want to go backcountry skiing? Yes. Do you want to not die? Yes. You're like, cool. Well, you got to ski in the trees with no overhead hazard and it's got to be 25 degrees. Are you going to have as much fun as skiing a 40 degree Abbey shoot? No. But are you going to still be able to come home at the end of the day? Yes. You know, I was talking to some of the guides there tech and be like, you know what everyone should pick up is pow surfing because pow surfing makes 25 degree pow laps more fun yeah. than anything and <laughs> we did a whole day where we just went pow surfing and it was like we found a slope that was maybe 20 degrees it was quite long it would have been super boring to ski we just went back did tons of laps on a pow surfer we're laughing and falling and having a blast so that to me is just maybe it's a sh and another shift in the mindset you know i will say we don't talk a ton about terrain management in avalanche clinics. We do a little bit, but more of that knowledge that needs to get put out there of being like, yes, back to that topic we had on one of the podcasts. You can ski on any given avalanche day, but you just have to make sure you know where you're going. So like, yes, I went to Silverton during a historically bad cycle. Did I come home? Yes. Why did I come home? Because we skied below 25 degrees with no overhead hazard the entire time. <laughs> you texted me a photo you're like this is kind of what we've been skiing all week and i think i said something like hashtag japan in silverton and i, I still gotta say i've said this before but i'm kind of like proud of you you know we have these conversations we've talked about this stuff a lot and i can just say like it feels like cody is very much practicing what he's preaching and you know like Again, with the pressures and the different incentives you would have to go get on gnarlier stuff or whatever, you're like, hey, man, I'm in Silverton and this is what we're doing this week. And it is not the kind of terrain that you normally associate with Silverton. And I'm like, cool, that is the responsible thing to do. And that's all just behind the scenes off record stuff. So I don't know. I, I hope I, I, I appreciate that about you. And um, I do think we need to we maybe need to think about for for upcoming winners. If we've got, you know, a tricky snowpack again, we got to just popularize the the POW surfers. POW surfers and dad, dad turns. That was what the other thing. Dad POW. Go ski dad POW. Go ski 25 degree POW surfer. Either you're doing with like, you know how like dad culture is like trending and whatever. Yeah. Like you, that's where we're going. Like we're going dad culture for POW skiing and we're going POW surfing for anyone else that doesn't want to make dad turns. So um, yeah, maybe that's where, that's where my new realm is in the, you know, it's after the 50 classics. I'm going to be just trying to popularize dad, dad turns and <laughs> Power surfing, just being like, just for the responsibility of my my career. Yeah, uh, this this might be the next thing. You may have just identified it. Well, people, in conclusion, be safe out there, and hopefully things stabilize a bit in the in the coming weeks. Um, but just be safe out there, and we want to yeah. we want to keep you all around. So. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Play a patient. I've been playing a patient. I've got a big project and I'm still playing a patient. Um, you just, you gotta, it's the, the name of the game, which then leads under our, our Blevins corner topic, which we can go quickly through, but it's like the same sort of thing. The, he did a profile, um, in the Colorado sun, uh, about controlled backcountry. So patrolled and con controlled backcountry use and kind of 
that sort of the the explosion of infrastructure among backcountry kind of skiing and went into a place called was a diamond peaks where they actually have kind of a volunteer style patrol back there you know we're seeing obviously controlled backcountry areas and backcountry ski resorts like up in northern bc i wonder if that's going to be more of a thing like a, a place where you can kind of uh not turn your brain off entirely, but turn it off a little bit more because you're, you know, you're earning your turns, you're getting that exercise, you're, you're, you're enjoying kind of nature in a slow way, but you're taking a little bit of the danger factor out in that, uh, you know, maybe they're throwing bombs and ski cut stuff, or maybe there's a patrol back there to like give you beta on lines and be there in case things go wrong. Um, I don't know. What do you, I kind of, I, I, in a certain way, I th- would like to see more of it. Yeah. This would be a trend that would not surprise me. And it's funny, it makes me think a little bit about the club fields down in New Zealand. And I mean, those are those are lift accessed, but it's done in this really creative and inventive way, right? Where they like literally like drove tractors up the mountain and just set up, they they turn the engines on, fire up a rope toe, and you get your nutcracker out and it brings you up the mountain. But like they could do it in such a low cost infrastructure kind of way. And I mean, if you're not putting in chairlifts and the rest, um, I think you can do this in certain areas. If there is a population close enough to the area where I could see this becoming a thing. And interestingly, I hadn't really thought about this before, but maybe this could possibly be a little bit of the sort of rebirth of more of the mom and pop type local ski areas, like fully local, small. Reopen Berthoud, reopen Berthoud Pass, not as a ski area, but as a backcountry skiing area with, uh, with patrol, with, you know, controlled aspects. I mean, I could see a, like, I've been hearing and seeing like the hundreds and hundreds of cars, how packed Berthoud Pass is to the point where people almost kind of consider it like a controlled area because, oh, there's so many tracks, let's just go up there. So, like, what if you were just to have, like, hey, for, let's say, a pass up there for uh, 200 bucks, and you get unlimited access, you can go whenever you want, and there will be, we will uh, avalanche control a certain area, you walk up and you get back down. It's still, like, untamed kind of backcountry skiing in its own way, but it's also removing some of the super dangerous elements of avalanches. I mean, that would be amazing. Like, I, I you know, we already see backcountry hotspots that are almost people perceive to be like control and patrol areas like safety and numbers so why don't actually step it up a little bit and allow for that um it'd be really i think a really cool place to one get people into backcountry skiing in a safer environment starting to understand it um starting to understand how physically tough it is um terrain management and whatnot and then it's also you're just like you yeah you said the rebirth of the mom and pop place. Maybe it's a backcountry ski areas. Hmm. Interesting. And the funny thing was, like, I didn't even know about this, but Blevins, the Diamond Peaks backcountry kind of backcountry patrol, volunteer patrol has been around for 30 years. So, you know, it's uh, pretty fascinating that it's been around for that long, but it'll be interesting. I've been talking with, you know, people within Solomon and stuff and people, local advocacy groups, and we're just like, infrastructure around backcountry skiing what is it what does it look like and how how do we do it you know obviously we don't want to destroy the backcountry experience each individual has a different reason why they go backcountry skiing people do it for exercise people do it for powder people do it for solitude um people do it just to i don't know get away from just the normal kind of ski routine that they're in. So um, I think if we can have areas that allow for people to get out there safely and understand it, you're still going to allow for everyone else to have their experience, whether that's solitude. You're like, well, just don't go to that area. (laughs) You'll be fine. Um, But then you have little other areas that are kind of in a certain way, a little, little tamed. Um, I don't see, I don't see a total downside in it um, other than the fact that people will probably knee-jerk react against any sort of backcountry infrastructure. Hmm. Where are we going next? 
Oh, yeah. That one, I, I guess I realized we started happy and we're just getting sad, sadder towards it. We're just ending on a low note. <laughs> this is the fascinating story and a story I've been waiting to come out for a while. And it's a story of Dean Cummings succumbing to serious mental illness and murdering someone. So if people aren't familiar with uh, Dean Cummings, go to Outside Online and there's a story about Dean Cummings that just came out. Um, he was the founder of H2O Heli in Valdez, Alaska. Um, he's a legend, ex-pro skier, kind of renowned for the industry. And the story kind of ends with him in New Mexico and now facing murder charges and potentially the rest of his life in prison. So really interesting article. Um, I have some stories about Dean from the past, but um, I don't know what wanted to hear what your take was on it. Yeah. And by the way, I want to just give a specific shout out to Devin O'Neill is the author of this article. It's really remarkable. Yeah, you all should read it. And Devin, this is very well done. It's a tough article, but it is very well done. So thank you, Devin. Dean has obviously been a figure in the ski industry for a long time and in a number of different ways. And, uh, you know, I think bits and pieces of, you know, the anecdotes in this article that are reported, like I know some of those things. I mean, there's a number of parts of this uh, story that do take place in New Mexico. And, you know, that was another layer where we were fairly close to some of the stuff um, that was happening. When this stuff really started to come out in a bigger way, one of the things that I had jumped to was, and I do not think this is the whole story by any stretch, but I really did wonder how much CTE chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which we, you know, have certainly been hearing a lot more with respect to the National Football League and football, these kind of head injuries and, and brain trauma, how much of that was a factor. And Devin does kind of at least touch on that in this article, but it seems like there were just issues that go back a lot further back than that for Dean. I don't know, man. I, I'm curious to hear your take because I kind of got to the end of this and I, I wrote in our, the kind of doc we put together each month for this. I was just like, I don't know that there's a moral to this story. No, I don't. I don't think there is any moral to the story. It's really, you know, he, Devin kind of ends it with us like, you know, this, maybe there's some things on the mental health side and letting, you know, there's some policy things, but to, to change, to get earlier warning, because they were, you know, talking about his wife giving warning to police and not able to do anything, um, you know, some of that stuff. But for the most part, it's just a really sad story. Um, the CTE thing is interesting. One of the things I've definitely read about um, and it would stood out to me was not necessarily CTE related to skiing, but getting in fights when he's young. One of the things I've, I've read some data talking about convicted felons and CTE present in their brain when they're very young. So getting in fights when you're 15, 16, CT starting to develop that early and how there's actually like a huge prevalency of convicted felons with CTE. So yeah, that could be a, a factor into it. The other thing is a factor too, is drug use. Like Elise, my wife and I were talking about this because we were talking about it in relation to the story and some other things is like, when you have mental health issues, heavy drug use is, can exacerbate it, specifically marijuana. It's something we all, you know, the culture of marijuana is like, oh, it's good. It's medicine. And yeah, for certain things, it is. And for certain people, it's not. Certain people, it, it can exacerbate paranoia. It can create larger issues down the road and can you know, induce psychosis in certain people. I had a friend that um, was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic and he was diagnosed the moment his first time he smoked weed, he absolutely went nuts, um, tried to fight cops and was arrested and was institutionalized for two years. So things like marijuana, which is like, I'm totally pro and pro legalization, but 
not necessarily for everyone. So I think that um, it also could be just personality disorders. You know, my stories with Dean are more all along those personality disorders. In the ski industry, when he was running H2O, it was renowned of he's going to steal from you. He will steal money and he would do all these kind of tricks of the trade to fly you extra hours, loop you around stuff. You're not going to ski. We would be like, Dean, we want to go to the diamond. And he would like lap us the longest way possible around the range to get there. And you're like, cool. So now our bill is going to be, you know, an extra fifteen hundred dollars each um so we there was that that was you know he pretty much burned every bridge among companies and pro skiers because he was constantly stealing from from us he also was very renowned for not letting you ski a line um you picking a line going i want to ski that hit that cliff you saying no uh, no i don't think it's good and then dropping himself on top of it telling them to point the cameras at him and then him hitting it. So what we saw Dean as before this all was like, he's just an asshole. He was just like, uh, like he steals from you. He's dishonest. And he was like narcissistic where you have your guide who you're paying to keep you watch and he's trying to get in the film. He was, you know, he was not liked within the ski industry towards the end. So, while you want to say like you're like yeah saw this coming no we did not see this coming like this is next level you're like to go from just what we thought is just an asshole you don't want to go fly around with to murdering someone you're like okay there was some severe mental health issues that this guy had potentially for a very long time what i'm more curious is about is like was you know his like was this very much mental health related or is this in a certain way like the manifestation of kind of what he created for himself um i i don't know and that's where the article kind of leaves it at is like you don't know otherwise then it's just it's a really sad story and mainly i feel really bad for his wife his kids i feel really bad for the people that worked for him i could care less that he dropped in on a line that I wanted to ski that when I made $20,000 in a year and I had to pay him $11,000 for my first heli trip of my life, which was like $4,000 more over than I budgeted. Don't care about that. Mainly care that it's just like, yeah, it's a, it's a sad story to see how the effects of these mental health issues and what has happened to his, to his family. So it's a good story. Sad read. Don't know how to turn it around. Don't know how to like prevent something like this in the future, but yeah. Are we ready to go to media recommendations? Because I have a I have a happy one. Okay, good. Okay, good. We can we can end off uh, talking about just repeatedly sad subjects. I know. Hopefully, one day in the ski industry, it's just like five things are all like good, good, good. Everything's good. The, this other amazing thing happened. Yeah. I mean, look there there is a lot of good things in the world and a lot of good things in skiing, including skiing itself, which turns out is still super fun and is continued to be an incredible mood enhancer as Luke Coppa and I have been referring to it uh, all season. Uh, so I, I am grateful every day I'm on the mountain and will be actually on the mountain in just a couple hours here again. So yeah, there's a lot of good. Yeah, it turns out the world, there's a lot of good and a lot of less good things in the world pretty much at all times. I think that's kind of the way, I think that's kind of the way the world works. Yep. For media recommendations, not a lot, but one thing I did want to shout out, I owe Brendan Leonard thanks for this recommendation, but sometime back, he he put me on to an artist uh, who goes by Coda the Friend, and Coda's got this album called Photo, F-O-T-O, that came out in 2019, and I've basically had this thing just on constant repeat. Great album, Brendan, thank you for the, for the suggestion. Yeah, Coda the Friend album, Photo, and Use I, I would recommend using photo as your inroads, and then you can check out Coda's more recent stuff and, and previous stuff and the like. Very into that album, and it's been on very heavy rotation for me. So what have you got? Have you had time to be watching or listening to anything? Uh, no, not really. I figured last week I took, last month I took it, and so I was going to give it to you. I've been, uh, yeah, mainly kind of, uh, I've been watching Dark more. I'm 
super into that. So I, and I curl up in my van in a in dark, scary spot, watching a very like intense uh, drama from the you know like the black woods of Germany. So still into still into dark, definitely that uh, album. I actually been listening to Caleb Elliott a lot lately. I don't know if you know him. Uh, yeah. I don't. Kind of yeah, kind of country Nashville sort of. Not necessarily country. I'm not super into country, but that's what I've been kind of driving to. Good driving music, but otherwise, no. I've been trying to work on the 50 so i'm in full production mode this time of year which involves very little actual consumption of media and more creation of media <laughs> yeah caleb elliott specific specific album or just running through tracks his newest album the the first album i went back that was where i found it his new his newest album i gotta i gotta pull it up here but uh the older album i actually didn't like at all i was like Ugh, this is bad he got a lot better so um the uh, forever to fade forever to fade is the um the album okay i'm gonna ch- i'm gonna check it out the last thing isn't really a media recommendation but this is a this is a book that i I feel like I should read in part because it seems really weird and strange what's going on here. But Bill Gates has this book that I think is now out and available. If it's not yet, it will be very, very shortly called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. You know, turns out Gates, whatever you think of him, is a very smart guy. I think we can all agree on that. I have read and heard Gates talk about some of his ideas about ways to solve, well, the impending climate disaster. And some of it, I'm like, man, are you sure? Or are you just doing weird, super genius stuff that could kind of come back to, you know, turn out be not a great idea? And so I'm going into this book kind of on the skeptical side a bit, but I'm like, this guy has been thinking hard about these things for a long time. And I feel like that in and of itself probably warrants me giving this some time and attention and just seeing if I, if he ends up convincing me and, you know, but I mean, and one of the things he says is like, he doesn't think that we can, you know, plant enough trees to have a really impactful change in terms of what we're doing for carbon sinks and the rest. And, you know, we we literally just posted yesterday an interview with uh, the brand director of Endura, and that's exactly one of the things they're doing is like they have pledged to plant a million trees a year for the next 10 years. And I don't know, in theory, I'm like, yes, there are other things that we could be doing, but I sure like the idea of like, let's get more plants up on this planet. It, I don't see how that leads to adverse consequences whereas some of the technological advances or shooting white dust into the sky to kind of block out rays of the sun again i haven't read it and i'm sure there is a well laid out case for this in the book but that starts getting into the thing where it's like hey remember 10 or 20 years ago when we tried that one thing and turns out that really came back to bite us in the ass yeah, that kind of reminds me, you know, I see a lot of the geoengineering arguments, but it reminds me of, you know, stuff I've read when I was more in fly fishing of like Flathead Lake um, up yeah. in Montana. Yeah. There's yes. like epic stories about that where they like tried to, they're like, oh, we introduced a fish and then they're like, oh, damn it, you know, de- yeah. <laughs> depleted the shrimp population. So they put the shrimp back in and then that just actually made the lake trout that were predators that they were trying to get rid of fatter and got rid of the natural and it just this whole and geoengineering disaster um because they couldn't foresee it and to think that we're going to be smarter than that is kind of hard to say but um but yeah no i'm you know what i'd be interested in reading is not that it's like bill gates is going to be the one that solves this it's bill gates is probably the people talking to all the people that are the smartest people trying to solve this and he's synthesizing and using his name and his monetary wealth to try and put those ideas out there is the way i look at it because yeah we're you know uh the average person isn't reading studies from the university of columbia or something like that but he can synthesize that into a book so i'm, I'm definitely fascinated 
fascinating reading that because we are getting to the point where everything I'm reading is like, we're not going to be talking about how do we cut to carbon zero right now. It's like, how are we going to reverse this? How are we going to create carbon sinks? How are we, we gotta, we're, we're already way too high. So, um, it's, yeah, it's a, I'm, I'm interested. I'll put it on my list as well. Okay. Well, hey, man, I think our work here is done, at least for the month. What an interesting and strange group of things we just talked about. But yeah. that that was uh, that's what we got for you today, folks. I Yeah, I don't really even know how to sum this one up. I, I, I don't think there's a, a, a fine thread to find throughout this. Um, so maybe we'll just say, hey, everybody, let's do our best to keep getting more educated. Let's do our best to, you know, figure out what it means to be responsible. Let's keep celebrating personal freedom and doing that in ways that are responsible. Let's see what uh, what we might be able to collectively do to continue to do smart things in terms of sustainability and uh, doing better in terms of how we are impacting the environment and climate. That, that sounds pretty good, except for, and also don't leave your skis in line. <laughs> oh yeah, and don't leave your skis in line, damn it, right. Or Cody's going to throw him uh, throw him down the hill unless, well, even if you're a really big enforcer, I guess that's what we've learned today. Cody doesn't care. Yeah. Those, skis are, yeah. those skis are getting thrown out of line. Yeah, uh, they, they will get thrown out of line, but uh, <laughs> I did care. I, I got scared when Kevin showed back up. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Well, hey, man, as always, good to talk and uh, good luck on your current mission there. I'll be very curious to see uh, what, in fact, you get on top of and uh, or don't. Yeah, I'm curious, too, because I don't know what I'm getting <laughs> on top of hopefully soon. We're still I'm still scared. So, well, I'm curious to find out what, what's going to be our first line as well. But hopefully the avalanche gods and the weather gods play friendly with us and we can uh, get back to taking off this project. So, cool, dude. Well, great to catch up and uh, talk to you next month. All right, man. Take care. Later. And that concludes this episode of the Blister Podcast. If you are enjoying these episodes, then we would certainly appreciate it if you would leave us that five-star rating in iTunes, and you should subscribe to the podcast just so you receive these episodes fresh from the oven right when they roll out. We've also got a number of really good podcast conversations on some of our other podcast feeds. There's a fantastic conversation with Ethan Newberry, who goes by The Ginger Runner, over on our Off the Couch podcast that is very much worth listening to. We've had some great conversations recently on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast channel, and we've got an excellent conversation also dropping this Thursday, a new episode, last Friday's Gear 30 episode was really fun where Sasha Anastas and Kara Williard and Luke Kappa and I went over a number of new skis that we spent some time on at the Blister Summit. And so, yeah, we're keeping this podcast train rolling around here. Anyway, check out all those other podcasts. We really do appreciate it if you guys are enjoying the shows to just leave those ratings. By the way, we do have to now make good on our telemark video that we have to put out now that we are past the blister summit we are making moves to make this happen so yeah you can expect a telemark video dropping from us sometime in the near future dear lord i gotta go telemark yeah so that's it thanks everybody and from all of us here in gunnison and crested butte please take good care of yourself and everybody else and we will talk to you again real soon <laughs>